0: The opportunity for the deal flow comes down to the broker's expectations. So what they're doing is the sellers are coming to a broker and they're saying, I'm looking for guidance on this deal. I'm a market seller. Go bring this to your top 10 to 15 groups. And those groups are getting a first look at it where others don't even know that it's up for sale. That also presents opportunity because there's less competition in the market, which is already artificially happening. A lot of the deals that we're bidding on now, there's five to six groups, whereas a year ago, these deals were competing with five to 15 groups.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale, I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science. But it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America, and in the world actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes, which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives, and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investment and funds. To learn more about my company and investing with me, visit wwwbluelake capitalcom Welcome to Ready to Scale
2: Season 4, let's get started. Hey, guys. Welcome to our final episode of Season 4 for Ready to Scale. My name is Jeanette Robinson, Director of Investor Relations with Blue Lake Capital. And today, joining me is one of my colleagues, Ryan Razaleski. Ryan is part of our acquisition team and helps with a variety of different tasks, including sourcing deal flow, doing a lot of analysis, and he's frankly just one of the smartest guys on the team that I know So I was able to convince him to join me on the show today. So Ryan, welcome.
0: Thank you, I appreciate you having me on. It's gonna be an interesting conversation because there's a lot of things happening in the market. So without further ado, let's dive in.
2: All right, perfect, I couldn't say it better. So Ryan is here to basically give us a recap of where we are currently in the market, essentially a state of the market. And he will be coming on and joining me at the end of each month to essentially give us Ryan's recap. So Ryan, Go ahead and hit us straight and give us the good, the bad, the ugly, and the fantastic.
0: Okay. I suppose we'll start with the ugly and we'll end on a high note. I think let's get the elephant out of the room, the interest rate environment. The capital markets, specifically the debt markets, is really shifting. About this morning, I believe the 10-year note opened up at five. It's putting a lot of pressure on cash flows at this point. And I want to say a year ago today, the 10-year was quoted about 200 basis points lower. We still have the forward curve that doesn't necessarily look favorable in the short term. We're expecting feds to increase rates slightly, but not at the extent that they have in 2022. And I'm going to reluctantly say that because I think anybody at this point who made that statement rather in 2022 is shooting themselves in the foot. And so that's why the volatility in the debt markets today is really hard to predict. However, we are shifting our strategy To account for that. So to protect the downside, which is why we're getting into more fixed rate agency debt that has a fixed loan payment. So we reduce the uncertainty and the volatility in cash flows in our underwriting, which has been even more conservative than we've historically done, which is even on the conservative side. So,
2: Yeah, definitely. And I know that that's going to be a really big challenge for a lot of operators coming into 2023, which today is actually January 12th. But I think that, that also, you know, since we started with the bad, let's jump over to at least one really good piece about that, which is that kind of volatility is going to create opportunities. So, you know, let's talk about what you're seeing as far as deal flow. And, you know, if you want to just kind of share with us kind of on a broad view of sure. what it is you're seeing deal flow wise and then kind of get into where you're starting to see this volatility creating additional opportunities that really can be very good news for real estate investors.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's probably the second most important topic and really at the forefront of all investors' minds at this point is what is the impact? What is the implication of this interest rate environment and how does that present opportunity for me and our group, so as a partnership? Exactly. So in aggregate, things were slow through the holidays there's really not a lot of deals on the market but we're starting to really see that shift in the last 2 weeks we're seeing a variety of deals specifically loan assumptions which i think is a hot topic and interesting too because when you look back a year 2 years ago loan assumptions were trading at a discount but now with the treasuries up they're trading for a premium so it's even Fixed rate deals that we're seeing in the market with no IO, but it has a favorable loan assumption of at least seven years remaining on the term, it is still better than we can find just buying outright, free and clear in refinancing or putting new capital into the deal. But that said, is there's a lot of deals on the market specifically from institutions that that's one thing that we've seen, and there's a lot of speculation on it's based on fee redemptions and putting more liquidity back into the funds, which is presenting opportunity for us. Us and other buyers that are actively in the market because you get to acquire a, a high quality institutional asset and their price to sell. So for example, we're looking at a deal right now in 15 miles south of Austin Central Business District, right on the IH35 booming corridor. In those deals about a year ago, we're trading for a three cap, three and a quarter. And now we're seeing it on the market and it's price to sell. I think the expectations of sellers is kind of collapsing the bid-ask spread. And, and what we've seen is this deals underwriting to about a four and a half cap. So about 125 to 150 basis points
2: above where the guidance was a year ago. So very it, it, interesting, very interesting, and I'm actually glad to hear that because because we have a lot of deal flow coming into the market, specifically from institutional's. I think that that's also going to have a ripple effect into you know private equity and also getting owners and operators to maybe adjust their pricing expectations as well. Absolutely. So you know we won't say what institutional's are doing <laughs> it, but I'm going to guess everybody might have an idea. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And back to the the opportunity set, the topic of conversation is when is the distress going to hit the market? Right. And what I mean by distress, and people use this term interchangeably, distress or opportunity capital or or rescue capital, which kind of has a negative connotation to it. But we're already starting to see it. I don't think we've even hit the beginning at this point. And the reason I say that is because there were a lot of bridge deals done in, let's call it mid to late 2020. And a lot of them had two to three year maturities. And these were highly leveraged deals with aggressive underwriting assumptions. And they were purchased at a three cap. So just based on where the cap rates are in the market, it's hard to make a business plan work. And what I mean is these underwritten assumptions were very aggressive, both on the rent side and on the unit upgrades. And what we're starting to see is that with the rising costs of material, the business plans are being executed. But a lot of groups are running out of capital. Mm-hmm. And what's happening is these loans are starting to come mature and as well as the rate caps that they purchased, which are extremely expensive right now. So if you want to extend your loan, you're going to pay a premium and you're going to have to come up with the capital. So we've actually seen this firsthand, but we haven't necessarily seen the volume that we're anticipating to come in the back half of the year. So a lot of opportunity comes down to these groups that don't necessarily know what they're going to do going forward. So they're approaching us and, and other groups, I'm sure, to determine are they going to refinance, which is going to cost a lot of money up front mm-hmm. because they're going to come to the table of, again, 80% leverage, didn't execute their business plan in the time frame they expected, interest rates shot up, reduced their cash flow, so their return projections are materially underperforming. So that's where yep. we are seeing opportunity, and we expect that to continue, Where whether it's JV partnerships, but I think this is going to present opportunity for us to come in and acquire high-quality assets at a a strong basis.
2: Interesting, interesting. And I'm curious to know, I would assume that a lot of these deals are probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing and assuming that they must be actually off-market because I'm guessing that these Groups do not want to call capital. They don't want to disappoint and fail their investors. And they are, you know, probably scrambling a little bit for some solutions. And therefore, I'm assuming that they're keeping these off market to be a little bit more discreet in finding those solutions. Is that a reasonable assumption? That's incredibly accurate. Yeah. And what's really
0: interesting, I'm glad you brought this up because relationships are going to be key in 2023. So I highly encourage you to grow your network. And the reason I say that is because even though deals that we're looking at today are not being marketed and there's There's really twofold. There's a lot of reasons for that. Number one is is price expectations Mm -hmm. and the volatility in the the debt markets. As I mentioned, where OMs will go through a full marketing process by the time they're ready to produce their material, the guidance has changed because the interest rates have fluctuated so much. So, a lot of the deals that we're seeing, not only on the opportunity side, but just in general, any seller that wants to go to market, they're trying to move the deals very quietly. And a lot of them are coming from strong relationships that we've built over time. And what's even more interesting is the opportunity for the deal flow comes down to the broker's expectations. So what they're doing is the sellers are coming to a broker and they're saying, I'm looking for guidance on this deal. I'm a market seller. Go bring this to your top 10 to 15 groups. And those groups are getting a first look at it where others don't even know that it's up for sale. That also presents opportunity because there's less competition in the market, which is already artificially happening. A lot of the deals that we're bidding on now, there's five to six groups, whereas a year ago, these deals
2: were competing with five to 15 groups. Yeah, and then, I remember it was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And the overbidding was insane to go along with it. Yeah, and, and what's another
0: shift in the market is, is a year, year and a half ago, everything was trading above market. So for you to get your first seat at the table and not even get to best and final, you're submitting your at whisper price and the brokers are coming back to you and saying, well, you're getting blown out of the water. Mm -hmm. And then you have to readjust your pricing. And next thing you know, you're bidding 5 to 10% above market just to even get into the final round. So we're seeing the opposite of that now where that discount or that bid-ask spread is about 10%, which is starting to shrink because sellers are finally now getting comfortable with the idea that we are no longer in a period where we Can sell a three cap in a secondary or tertiary market in the Sunbelt. It's just not realistic because buyers' expectations and our return projections don't align with that. So they're starting to come down. We're starting to see that price change. But at the same time, the spread is still maintaining a reasonable amount just for the fact that now buyers are facing interest rate risk. Mm-hmm. So the price that we might have striked at, let's say six months ago, is not the same number that we're willing to transact at now. So that's why we're collapsing, but not at the extent that gets us to a mutual agreement, but we're getting there.
2: Very interesting. Very interesting. Now let's talk about you know what matters most obviously to real estate investors, which is the returns. So at the end of the day, what happens to the money that is going out to all of the investors that are participating in these deals?
0: Yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned that as well, because the return projections in a lot of our underwriting assumptions haven't materially shifted from what we've kind of gave guidance on, you know, based on a core plus or a value add strategy. That hasn't necessarily shifted. Granted, the past two years, investors really benefited from incredible- It was a good run. (laughs) Which is still going to continue, just albeit at a slower pace than what we've seen, but still a great investment vehicle compared to alternative investments. But the return structure really hasn't changed. I mean, you may not see 30% exits because of the cap rate compressions. However, you still are going to see steady cash flow and long-term appreciation because the fundamentals of the industry are still strong. I read a fact, I think a research report came out by RealPage about three months ago that stated household incomes are keeping up At pace with rent growth because there was a lot of conversation around affordability as rents continued to accelerate exponential rates over the last two years. However, from first quarter of 2020 to the second quarter of 2022, rent growth has been approximately 21.7% based on their transaction data on new leases being signed, Mm -hmm. but household incomes are up 21.4%. So the affordability, nearly that's right. So it, it, it's keeping up with the inflated rent growth, which is softening. There's no question about that specifically because of the supply wave that's coming in the sun belt, which is temporary, but the long term through 2030, we are still supply constrained. And what I was essentially alluding to is that the renters are. Still strong. I mean, there has been a shift in consumer confidence, which is drawing higher retention. However, they're not allocating a larger percentage of their household income to rent, which is very favorable. And that's kind of articulated through rent collections Mm -hmm. pre, mid, and post-COVID is is still now back just below pre-COVID of 96 to 97 range, but over 95.5%, which is still strong. So the the fundamentals in the industry have yet to show sign of slowing down.
2: Wonderful. That's definitely good news to me and, you know, I'm sure it's one of the reasons why I and all, you know, probably I would assume almost all of our investors opt to be part of multifamily investments is at the end of the day, housing is always going to be in a tremendous priority for, you know, the vast majority of people. So that's good. That's some very promising insights and updates about, you know, how the market is currently functioning, the expectations about how renters are going to continue to behave, Kind of moving into 2023, I know that there's been a little bit of a, I call it the chicken little effect, you know, with people being under the impression that suddenly we're going to have a a massive vacancies and renters are just going to suddenly disappear and the demand is suddenly going to drop. I think a lot of that has been more fuel-based, fear-based, excuse me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Fueled by fear, I guess, is what I'm yeah, trying to I'm say if I stutter be- over myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Another great point, though, because there was so much pent-up demand in 2022, which is what drove those 30% percent trade outrage, rates, specifically in the Sunbelts in Florida, as people continue to migrate and accelerate. their already predetermined plans to relocate, whether it's downsizing. But what we've kind of seen is that The deals that we look at are your your strong location, favorable demographic in a robust economy that has plenty of job growth and employment growth is really strong. And we're insulated from a lot of the supply wave because we don't necessarily compete with your A-class lifestyle renters, which – rent because they choose to, not because they have to. Whereas in our class B, we have a mix of your lifestyle renters and your necessity renters. However, the shift in the hybrid work from home policy has really benefited the secondary markets because a lot of residents are now migrating into suburban areas that they have more space, a better quality of life, a lower price point in a larger unit really benefits the deals that we look at specifically outside of these core urban downtown locations. So that's a great point in aggregate.
2: You know, and it's interesting too, I like what you're touching on. I think we were talking about this the other day, but basically the difference or the delta between a traditional, you know, class B rent versus a class A rent. And it's really far more likely to see, in my opinion, class A renters opting for class B Lifestyles, you know, given the current economy, more so than seeing class B renters opting for class C lifestyles. That's just really a much different transition that I just don't anticipate we're going to see. So I actually anticipate that we're going to continue to see actually increased demand is my personal opinion Mm -hmm. for class B assets as class A renters begin to maybe tighten the wallet just a little bit as consumer confidence is slightly rocked. That's my personal thought on it. Yeah,
0: that's a fair argument. And the reason I I say that is because to your point, the research through Axio, which is another real page product, has a lot of data on the top 150 markets. And the difference between a class A rent and a class B rent is over $450. On a percentage basis, it's a large number. So it makes it a material difference. The only risk profile that I can see personally, and I guess this is speculation and opinionated, however, the new construction that's being delivered in the sunbelt is going to have to become a competitive price point because they're going to be competing with existing product in the area so i i think concessions will still be prevalent in most core and secondary markets however again in the, in the locations that we target I don't think we'll be as impacted. We're going to have to really hone in on the asset management as well as any group because at this point, operations is going to be a focal point of 2023 to make sure that these properties are performing and are cash flowing because in 2022 and 2021, even dating back to mid 2020. Operators were hiding behind 30% trade out rates. Whereas now there's going to be an emphasis on expense discipline in an inflationary environment. You need to control your variable expenses to make sure that you're allocating and distributing every dollar that's coming from your rent growth down to the bottom line and going directly to your investors. So that, that's going to be a core focus. And that's something us here at Blue Lake has really honed in on is looking at national contracts and other types of negotiations to reduce our expense load so we can still maintain returns for our investors.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, obviously we're biased because we're Blue Lake Capital people. (laughs) But, you know, I have to say that that is one of the things that I've noticed over time, you know, there's a lot of groups out there that talk about value add and they'll talk about the renovation plan and you know their strategies for pushing rents. But you know, anytime that I am actually talking about value add, I actually start first by talking about what we do on the back end, where it really is coming in and streamlining the operations and getting a very firm grasp on that. Because when you're able to basically, you know, grab savings on the back end and then push you know profits on the front end. That is how you create, you know, a very profitable investment. You can't just come in, expect to, you know, do some renovations, push, rents, and then not have your hands very tightly on all of the operations and managing all of those expenses and really running the asset very efficiently. So to me, a value-add plan is not just about renovations. It's about coming in and really overhauling the operations as well. How long have you been underwriting for? (laughs) So
0: it's funny you say that because that's the first thing we're looking at is operational efficiency. In addition to rents, obviously, that's a critical piece as well. But we truly want to dig in and understand how is this property performing, which we tend to go back about three years. And if we can get financial statements even prior to COVID, we want to understand how this property performs pre-COVID, mid-COVID, and then post-COVID kind of ignoring some of the organic rent growth that's been seen market specific. But we really dig into the variables and we say, how are they operating this property? Because to your point, value add, a lot of people just think, you're picking up a hammer and nail, and, and you're making improvements to the property, both interior and accretive ex- exterior projects. But in reality, value add is all about how much income you can squeeze out of this property, and a lot of that comes down to just simply how you're managing it. It's often overlooked. It, it's the simple things of operation strategy is is looking at the tour path for the prospect. Looking at the resident experience, because that's what's driving retention, that's what's driving great reviews, which is in result driving more demand to your property. So all of these things are critical pieces that we try to analyze without the financial speak for themselves, but it also tells a story about how the operations is performing.
2: Excellent. I couldn't say it better. So I appreciate you reinforcing that as well. So Ryan, as we kind of wrap up the show here, what would be your key piece of advice that you would give to – I'm going to kind of talk to two different groups at the same time here. So what would be your key piece of advice that you would give to retail investors like the many investors we have? Mm -hmm. And then I'm also curious what your key piece of advice would be that you would give to you know, owner and operators that are out there and are trying to create the best strategy that they can for where we are today.
0: Yeah. So I'll start with the former. So from the retail investor side, I would just continue everything you're doing, just make sure you're looking at the big picture. There's a lot of volatility in the cash flows. So there will be some variables, there will be some bumps, but continue to focus on the long-term, which is I presume, and again, this is speculation, um, this is not tax advice, but make sure that your investment goals align with your expectations and really just continue looking at the long-term because the appreciation is going to be there. The cash flows are still going to be steady. But there's going to be a difference in investor sentiment depending on what they're looking for. If you're looking for more cash flows or if you're looking for forced appreciation, or if you're looking for a combination of both, I would just make sure you look at your sponsor in the deals that you are pursuing. Make sure they align with your investment strategy because there will be times where if you don't necessarily – have emphasis or, or focus on cash flow as a priority, then look at those value-add deals. But if you're looking for a healthy balance between cash flows and, and risk-adjusted returns through forced appreciation, then look at your core plus deals. And that, those are the types of things that we look at. And obviously, I'm, I'm not going to get in your chair because <laughs> you're already taking my job apparently. So <laughs> that would be my advice is look at the long-term and just look at the fundamentals of the market and make sure your investment strategy aligns with the deal that's being brought to you. And then more on the owner-operator side, from an institutional perspective or whether it's syndication firms, fund structures, I would really focus on the operations. That's going to be critical because the numbers will follow, but to really provide superior risk-adjusted returns for your investor base, it's all going to come down to a lot of asset management in addition to the acquisition side because it all depends on how you buy the property. You want to make sure it's a low basis and and you do your due diligence. However, making sure that you don't forget about honing in on, on the operational structure and expense load more specifically.
2: Excellent advice. All right. Well, Ryan, thank you very much for joining us today. It's pleasure. I'm going to run you through a quick five questions that we have asked all of the guests in season 4. Are you ready? Am I ready. Yes, are I'm always you ready? ready. All right. So, in addition to all of the fun stuff that we just talked about, what do you do for fun? What is an actual hobby that you have? What do I do
0: for fun? Wow, you're throwing me a curveball here. So, I, I'm probably The last person you want to sit with on a a Friday night at a bar having a beer, because all I'm doing is talking numbers. I'm a nerd, true and through. But I think for me, it depends on seasonal. I like to clam down in uh, Southern Rhode Island. Other than that, I like to learn. I like to read. I just try to expand my knowledge base and, and make sure that I'm capitalizing on on the opportunity to expand on my knowledge base. So anything that comes from education or reading or listening to podcasts and other people's perspectives. I am highly consumed with that because I, uh, I used to be a sports guy playing hockey and soccer and that consumed my life and I shifted gears.
2: <laughs> nice. You're still in the ring. It's just a different one, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. All right. And what is something that most people don't know about you? I would have to say, I have never
0: personally purchased anything on Amazon before. I've done it once or twice through my significant other, but I have never formally purchased anything from Amazon, which is hard for most people to believe.
2: I can't even fathom. It's like you're not even <laughs> speaking English to me right now. I yes. don't understand how you function, <laughs> which my postman could absolutely testify to because yeah, the delivery guy visits my house a yeah, lot. Yeah, I've seen 10 lot.
0: packages in the last yeah. 24 hours. Yeah. And I,
2: I think your name's on half of them. Yeah, yes. I can't even fathom. All right. What about as far as, and you, know, you already talked about you like reading, so I'm gonna assume that you would have hopefully a good answer to this. What is a book that you would just absolutely recommend people need to read that are involved in real estate investing.
0: So real estate investing, and this is – Correlated. However, most people will think otherwise because it's a book by called Profit First by Michael Mikalowicz. And what it does is it, it gets into the psychology of small business and entrepreneurship and the ideology that to produce more cash flow and more income for your business, that you need to just grow revenue, whether that's creating new income streams, acquiring new, new properties or, or getting into different market segments. But the fundamental of the book is talking about looking at The profit and loss statement, opposite. So look at your income first, your expenses, and then your revenue, not how much revenue you're generating, your expense load, and then what's left remaining, but to look at it from that perspective, to really understand how your business runs, how it makes money and how you can increase that. So for example, a contractor might go out and say, well, you know what, maybe I want to get into landscaping. That's great because that's going to increase your revenue stream. However, what are the costs associated with that? So for example, you're going to have to buy equipment and that's going to cost a lot of money. So it's the idea of everybody believes that to grow your bottom line, you need to start with the top line instead of starting at the bottom.
2: Interesting. Interesting. I used to back in the day, have a startup company with a retired Air Force general. And he always talked about, you know, the way he would strategize, the way he would plan. It was always with the beginning at the end yeah you know with whatever was at the end was that that's where you started yeah. so fundamental I th- concept yeah but it can be vastly overlooked interesting interesting all right good now the last one is kind of a stickler oh boy so as you know one of the things that we talk about here at blue lake and you know it's supposed to be the overarching point of everything that we do is really not about money it's about living an extraordinary life it's about really you know living in line with your passions And you know, having financial wealth so that it can be a tool and a resource for you in building the kind of life you want. So what is your advice? for building an extraordinary life? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's a, that's a hard hitter. But when
0: I think of growing wealth, I look at it from a freedom perspective. So I am striving for financial freedom so I can do everything that I am passionate about, which I think if you ask my fiance, I shall say you need to find some passions but <laughs> outside of work. But I think to live an extraordinary life, you, you just realistically need to, again, purely an opinion, understand what's important to you, whether that's family, whether that's your financial structure, whatever that may be. I would really say to live an extraordinary life is really be bold, which is another value that, that we have here. Don't take time for granted because it's it's as precious as can be. It's, I would really focus on the things that you enjoy and that makes you happy. And that's living an extraordinary life because a lot of people just go through the motions every single day without meaning. So I I think meaning is a a big component of that.
2: Excellent, excellent. See guys, it's not just lip service. We really are big on being bold here. And I think it's one of the things that helps us attract, you know, like-minded people to our teams and do the things that we do here at Blue Lake. So on that note, in the words of Ellie, be bold, be strong, and keep moving forward. And we'll see you for season five.